Note. This is a true crime story. Character dialogues are direct quotations. In an effort to accurately represent sources, some cited opinions are depictions of a past social sentiment and do not represent the beliefs of the content creator. In addition, this contains violent and dark subject matter. Listener discretion advised. Children to aid in search. Several suspects have been questioned closely and made to give in detail their movements since the day of the murder. Welcome, dear listener, to LA 1909, a true crime podcast uncovering a city's history through a murder mystery. Over the next several episodes, a Los Angeles homicide investigation will be reconstructed using early 20th century records and newspaper articles. The case is that of a young girl, a working-class immigrant's daughter, found murdered, an all-American L.A. sheriff, and a parade of suspects. Today, the cash reward is steadily raised as the park is dredged for clues and suspects. I'm John E. Marino, and this is the Griffith Park Murder Mystery. Episode 2, Among Tigers Wild. After Anna's body is lowered into the grave at Rosedale, and the last mourners shuffle away, investigators momentarily exhume her body for one final examination. They scrutinize more closely the two apparent bite marks on the girl, and prepare a description to be printed in circulars. Careful diagrams and descriptions of these impressions were taken by detectives. There are irregularities in the teeth which made the indentations. The police say that no two sets of teeth would leave the same impressions, and consequently, consider this one of the most important clues in the murder mystery. While Anna Polterra's funeral service is being held, the Los Feliz school children are searching the peaks and gullies in the vicinity of where her body was found. The search is headed by lead investigator, Sheriff William Hamill. I warn every parent to keep strict watch on their children. The man who murdered Annie Polterra is still in the vicinity of Los Angeles, and I should not be surprised if he is heard from again. Classmates dive through tall grass, while other investigators trample and tear at scrub and brush. On the Los Feliz Road, the dirt trail bordering the south and southeastern edge of Griffith Park, where the little girl was last seen, bushes are prodded, back trails followed, every last rock in the riverbed moved and removed. Wading through the yellowed flower stalks, the children each eagerly hope they will find the meaningful clue, not in the least considering what might find them. Three large rattlesnakes cross paths with the searchers and must be bludgeoned before officers decide, setting schoolchildren loose in a 3,000-acre park to look for a child killer and the evidence to convict him might be dangerous, and called everyone back to the main road. Almost every foot of that ground in that district has been closely scrutinized by deputy sheriffs, detectives, mounted men, and these school children. 
And according to the last reports from the section, nothing that would lead to further disclosures was learned. Detectives Rico and Talimantes, who have been scouring the hills near where the body was found, returned to Los Angeles. Talamantes stated he had a slight clue which he was following, and that developments probably will result. The only other leads are a pair of campsites illustrating the kind of transients residing in the park. W.D. Bark Dahl of Tropico, today's Atwater Village in southernmost Glendale, uncovers a camp a half mile northwest of where Anna was discovered. At the site, a newspaper dated April 18th leads investigators to assume the inhabitants had dwelled there since at least a month before the murder and probably stayed until very recently. They also reason the occupants would return since the campsite is littered with a large sum of gold and silver alloy and other effects. A number of dyes were discovered. A dollar mold and dye bearing date 1881 and a like mold and dye of half dollars bearing date 1891 were discovered. Vaseline and other drugs used in manipulating the counterfeiting outfit were neatly packed away in a box near where the molds were found. Officers from the posse took charge of the find and brought it to Los Angeles. Eventually, detectives would doubt any counterfeiting was actually committed at this camp. The blue clay molds determined to be the work of a complete amateur. But the other campsite, uncovered by an 18-year-old Tropico resident, is highly intriguing to investigators. The prior Sunday evening, the night before Anna's disappearance, the Noble Brothers Market just across the Tropico Bridge from where her body was found is burglarized. The investigators are certain this encampment was the thief's hideout. Old tin cans that had once borne particular brands of food carried only by the stores robbed in Glendale were also found. For weeks, various gangs of toughs must have been inhabiting the brush in the vicinity of the park, going into the towns nearby to beg and rob, and when the body of the girl was found, they were compelled to flee from their hiding places or be found and shot on suspicion. Detectives devise a plan to stake out each of the campsites, hoping the outlaws had not yet been tipped off by the locals or the press. These two camps, together with the one found Thursday afternoon, where 12 sticks of dynamite in a gunny sack formed the most important exhibit, are being watched every night in the hopes that the occupants may take a chance and return to secure their property. The slaying of a nine-year-old girl suddenly drew all eyes to the wild Griffith Park. The park had been donated to the city by mining investor Griffith J. Griffith. Though he insisted the grant was a Christmas present, it is speculated he was aiming to dodge taxes on a property deemed largely worthless for development. In December of 1896, Griffith stood with his wife Christina and spoke to the city council upon the park's donation. It must be made a place of rest and relaxation for the masses, a resort for the rank and file, for the plain people. I consider it my obligation to make Los Angeles a happy, cleaner, and finer city. 
I wish to pay my debt of duty in this way to the community in which I have prospered. Seven years later, in the presidential suite of the Arcadia Hotel in Santa Monica, a delusional Griffith would be arrested for shooting his wife in the eye, insisting she was conspiring to poison him as a result of her secret tryst with Pope Pius X. She wasn't. She survived only by jumping out of the second-story hotel window and fleeing. As a result, Griffith would serve three years in prison, and the city would refuse any additional funding from him. By 1909, the park was so underregulated that Anna Polterra could be abducted from a main thoroughfare, assaulted and murdered, without being discovered for days. The park's undergrowth was overgrown and the thicket too thick. Griffith Park is one of the most dangerous places in Southern California. It lies on the edge of the riverbed and the riverbed is infested with dangerous hobos, the lowest dregs of humanity. There is only one man to guard the park and no one to guard the riverbed. No one officer could patrol the riverbed. He would be murdered on the first night. The only safety is for the supervisors to provide a patrol to clean out the hobo camps. Griffith Park will never be anything other than a menace until this is done. A hidden den, affectionately referred to as Jackson's Hole by the vagrant gangs who occupy it is patrolled by a single mounted officer, Deputy Sheriff Johnson, who spends his days shaking tramps out of the park. But by cover of night, the vagabonds are much more easily able to slink about. The community is quick to blame Johnson for not having sufficiently deterred the crime. The facts are, however, that Johnson is doing his duty. He is a veteran of the Boer War, a member of General Roberts' bodyguard, and a clean, brave Englishman but he is unable to sufficiently guard the park. Ever since this murder, since literally hundreds of sleuths, amateur and professional, have been scouring the riverbed, the tramps have stuck by their Jackson's Hole. For a distance of two miles up and down the river, this riverbed is one of the most famous hobo camps in the United States. Until drastic war is declared, Griffith Park will be an unsafe place for a woman after nightfall and none too safe before nightfall. The wonder is that this is Griffith Park's first tragedy. On one canvas of the nearby riverbed, Sheriff Hamill comes across three separate tramp camps. Two of the men he tries removing turn harsh and defiant. Oh, I want you to understand that I am a free American citizen. And I want you to understand that you may be a free American citizen but just at present, you have a sovereign, and I am a sovereign. Unless you are out of here in about five seconds, your sovereign intends to give you a swift kick in the pants. The man left, huffing and scowling. The sheriff has worse luck with another tramp. After refusing to leave, Sheriff Hamill has one of his deputies arrest him. But he doesn't go quietly. I want butter with my bread. I want butter with my bread. 
I want butter with my bread. Deputy Turnkey. Aye. Give this man water with his bread. In their efforts to run him down, detectives have disguised themselves as tramps and, fraternizing with bands of hobos, have tried to learn something which may lead to his capture. But up to the present, their efforts have been unavailing. Although several suspects have been questioned closely and made to give in detail their movements since the day of the murder, nothing has been learned to connect any of them with the crime. When the day's work had been completed and a score or more of clues investigated, Sheriff Hamill made the following statement. It is my firm belief that one man murdered and brutally assaulted little Anna Polterra. I have investigated every clue turned into the office today. My men have searched every foot of the country in the vicinity of the place where the body was found. I believe it was a one-man job, and that man who did it was a Mexican. I can't help but believe that such was the case. No matter what clue comes into the office, we work it out thoroughly and come back to the original starting point. The man seen by Martin Baumister on the afternoon of the tragedy. I want every man in Southern California to keep a careful watch for this fiend. He is of Mexican laborer type, between 20 and 30 years of age. He weighs about 150 pounds and is 5 feet 7 inches in height. His complexion is dark, his hair black, his face full, his manner slouchy. He wears a little black mustache. He speaks English as well as Spanish. His disposition is sullen. The hat worn by him when last seen was a black slouch. His shirt was black sateen. His overalls, blue, also his jumper. He wore brogans and carried a small bundle done up in a bandana handkerchief. Baumister was driving along the road after having made a trip to Ivanhoe. He saw the little girl trudging along on her way home from school. He knew her and spoke to her as he passed, and she waved her hand in return. A hundred feet farther on the road was this Mexican, the man answering the description I have given. Every moment or two, he turned to look back at the little figure behind him. When Baumister spoke to him, his only answer was a sullen word, and he appeared to be trying to avoid notice. He was within a hundred feet of her when she was last seen alive. He was on the same road. The body was found not more than a quarter of a mile away from where the child was last seen alive with the Mexican walking in front of her. I believe, further, that the fiend carried the little girl's books away with him and that they have probably been thrown away at some distance from the scene of the tragedy. I have telegraphed to every officer in Southern California to pick up this wanderer, if they can find him. An hour after the laborer was seen walking ahead of Anna, a picnic party composed of a couple of reverends and their families, six in all, observed the man walking alone. The six of them declare that under his arm he carried a parcel done up in a newspaper. The theory is that the parcel contained the school books and lunchbox, which were wrapped up in the newspaper she was taking home. 
After passing the picnickers, the man disappeared in a clump of weeds. At the sheriff's office, at Central Station, the telephone rings off the hook. A man, matching the description of the Baumister suspect, is caught sleeping in a boxcar. Another, washing his clothes at Griffith Park, is cornered by a mob. Nothing comes of these. Then, just after one o'clock, a voice springs through the telephone. Another potential suspect had been spotted along the farm road near Arcadia. The man carried a blanket, and when the caller spoke to him, he quickly tossed the material to the ground and ran off. After approaching the blanket, he discovered it to be sprinkled with blood and covered in strands of human hair. Sheriff Hamill gathers his deputies and crams into the new squad car. The automobile, driven by every ounce of power in its trim red frame, shot out through the city streets to the open roads, its horn shrieking a warning, and the men leaning forward and holding on for life as houses and trees dashed by. The average automobile in 1909 traveled a total of 14 miles per hour. Finally, their car pulls up, and the sheriff's men march out, scouring the surrounding area for the suspect. Hamill stays behind, and approaching the mob, asks to be shown the blanket in question. Apparently, there is reluctance. The tipper won't identify himself. The squad returns a short time later, having determined the suspect is no longer in the vicinity. After a long while, Hamill finally demands to see the clue, and the Good Samaritan who called in slinks out from the crowd, holding the blanket. The completely unremarkable man holds a completely unremarkable bunch of fabric. No sign of hair or blood or anything. Once again, the officers return to Los Angeles, empty-handed. Clue after clue has been run down with similar results, and the searchers are now as much baffled as the day they first began to work on the case. Yesterday, the Board of Supervisors authorized a reward of $1,000 for the capture of the brute responsible for the crime. This brings the amount offered for the apprehension of the murderer up to $1,750. The murdered girl's school books and lunch basket are missing, and it is thought if these are found, a new clue will be revealed that probably may lead to the identity of the murderer. Next time on LA 1909. Lunchbox of Anapoterra is discovered. It may be hours, days, or months before this monster is captured, but I believe that he will be captured and made to say the penalty for this crime. The reward for the capture and conviction of the murderer is now $1,850. LA 1909 is an independent podcast written, directed, performed, and produced by John E. Marino. To support the podcast, 
please follow the link in the show notes. It also helps to comment, rate, and subscribe wherever you are listening. And follow our Instagram at Los Angeles Mysteries. Music, courtesy of Project Gutenberg Audio. Piano rolls by Scott Joplin and Claude Debussy. Other music performed by John E. Marino.